If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durimple. Right. Our, our very special guest. Um, you don't need me to tell you because you've been riveted since Tuesday. I know you have. It's Vincent Brown. And uh, he's written this amazing book that we talked a little bit about in, in the first part of this uh, two-part podcast, Tacky's Revolt. We didn't even get to the, the tacky of the revolt. <laughs> until <laughs> all, the last minute. No, until the last minute. I mean, it's just, it reminds me of my sort of history revision that I did at school. <laughs> it's like, you know, just do everything else except the thing, the, the, the thing. Okay. You're going to be so, examined. Though. <laughs> that's just terrible, but it's how I roll. Okay. So tell us about Tacky. What do we know and what do we, what, what, what do we think of his arrival in these lands? And what does he think? Just in the last minute of the last book, Podcast, you actually use the word chief tacky. Do we know mm-hmm. that he was a chief on the West Coast? Or? So we actually don't know as much about tacky as we know about a Pongo wager, who I described in the last episode of the podcast. Um, we know that he arrives kind of as a grown man, but perhaps a young man. And that we do know that tacky or techi is a title for a chieftain, a ga chieftain in West Africa in the Gold Coast. There are other Techis, actually. There's a Techie who's a leader of a slave uh, conspiracy in Antigua in 1736. And there's this Tachy or Techi in the parish of St. Mary who leads Techie's revolt in 1760. So we don't know that much about him. We don't know exactly when he arrived, but we know that he worked on frontier plantation in Jamaica. And this is a, an estate that kind of overlooks the, the bay of Port Maria and the town. So it was kind of strategically located from that place in the parish of St. Mary. He could survey the British positions. Do we know what he did when he first arrived? We know that he was probably some kind of headman on a sugar plantation. So that meant he was perhaps even a driver, as we know that a pongo wager was a driver in Westmoreland. So, right? so what is a driver? Yes, because what I think not, not everybody will know what that is. Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, in part because, you know, these plantations were overwhelmingly populated by enslaved people, right? There were not enough white people to assume all the positions of authority. And what wound up happening is certain enslaved people would be promoted to oversee others. And then the white overseer would be the line uh, manager to the, the line the manager drivers. over them. Yeah, great. Thank you. And so, you know, you had these kind of divisions, gradations of hierarchy, even among enslaved people. And what we think is that, you know, people who may have had habits in, of command in West Africa, like Opongo or like Taki, 
those would have been recognized and those people would have been put into positions of authority over other enslaved people on Jamaican plantations. Does that mean they sort of have, you know, the quite literal whip hand over their fellow countrymen? Would they would they have enforced the brutality on the plantations? They do. And so uh, often the kind of direct enforcers of what we can call white brutality on plantations are in fact black people. Mm. And the the population is divided how on the plantations? Because again, when we, we look at representations, thanks to, you know, Hollywood, again, it's predominantly women who are doing the cotton picking and the men are doing the sugarcane cutting. But but that's Hollywood. What's reality? I and mean, what is the division of labor here among genders and ages? Yeah. In fact, the best research on, on, on sugar plantation labor shows that women were equally involved in the planting of sugarcane, but women were not as likely to be drivers. So those positions were largely reserved for men, although there were some women drivers, especially over what they called the the second and third gangs, the lesser gangs that often included children and more women. Sometimes women would be drivers over those gangs and they were involved in, say, kind of cleaning up the cane trash and clearing up after the hardest labor had been happening. Um, but those main gangs, the people who were doing digging the holes for sugarcane, the people who were chopping the sugarcane, even though many of those people would have been women, the drivers like Taki or like Opongo were much more likely to be men. And if you've, if you've got a, I mean, if you're, you're there breaking your back all day in the heat and the humidity, and you see somebody who's got the same color skin as you on a horse with a whip, I'm sort of thinking that they're in danger because, I mean, I know I'd probably want to knock him off his horse and do some great damage to him. I mean, what was the driver's life like? How much danger were they in? You know, the thing is, is the driver was in some ways an expression of the authority of the planter. Uh, the plantation manager or of the owner. And so they were given special concessions and favors, a bit better house, a bit more food, better clothing, some more range of, of movement, autonomy. And then, of course, there's just the simple fact of being granted a kind of authority over other people that would enhance someone's sense of self, right? So that's what they gained from the deal. Now, that also meant that you know people didn't like them, would protest them. They had to negotiate among the enslaved to maintain their authority. So, right their you know their authority was derived from the slave planters. At the same time, there's a politics involved in not provoking a rebellion, right? As a driver. Now, I think one of the things you mentioned was that you know these people maybe may have all had black skin, and that's where one has to take politics among black people seriously. Remember that like blackness, color was not the only axis of identification. Yeah. What is it? I mean, are these from very varied catchments? I mean, are they speaking the same languages? Where are they brought from? Well, that's exactly right. So you have people coming from Africa from a wide swath of territory from the Senegal River all the way down to the Zaire River and then even around as far as Madagascar. So they speak different languages. They worship different deities. They're from different polities. They recognize different kinds of political authority. Okay. Is there any attempt at this stage to convert them to Christianity, or is it an entirely non-Christian world within the slave community? So among the enslaved, it's mostly a non-Christian world. Many of your listeners will not know, however, that in West Central Africa, right, there were many Catholics. In fact, the Kingdom of Congo formally converted to Catholicism in 1491, 
a year no, before Columbus sailed the no, ocean blue. No, no. <laughs> yeah. So from 1491, right on through the 19th century, the kingdom of Congo maintained a relationship with the Catholic church. And so there were many converts in West Central Africa that were at least exposed to symbols of Christianity. And, you know, many were also committed Catholics, right? Those people were in Jamaica as well. But for the most part, right, Christianization in the broadest sense didn't really happen until missionaries began to arrive in the second half of the 18th century. Same time as in India, exactly the right, same time. Right, especially, yeah. yeah. The Protestants yeah. really don't kind of get their act together and their missions to, you know, the heathens, as they called them, uh, until the later 18th century. So first we have the Moravians among the Protestants, uh, and then the Methodists and the Baptists. Um, the Anglicans never really kind of, you know, pay that much attention. And what sort of spiritual life would you have had on a plantation? Are there, are there shamans? Are there, what forms of spiritual life are brought from the non-Christian African religions? Well, this is a kind of really fascinating and, and for me kind of perennially difficult question to just examine the contours of African and Black spirituality before Christianization. And, and of what we do know is that, you know, there are people who are coming from various parts of West Africa trying to recognize what's similar and trying to think about how they can together come up with new ritual traditions to do the kinds of things that, you know, spiritual life must do. Maintain relations between the living and the dead, right? Maintain relations between the material and the supernatural world. Create fellowship among communities that is about kind of harnessing spiritual forces for the social good. And those things are going to be drawn heavily from African ways of knowing, the afterlife, African ways of knowing spirits and deities, uh, but they're going to be remixed and reformulated in the Americas. You, you put a man like Taki on a horse and you give Taki a whip. You are also running the risk of giving him authority to turn against you, I'm thinking. I mean, you know, this is so, you know, you, you put somebody like that as a driver. They are able to range across great swathes of the plantation and, and the county at what point do we even know when Taki decides, actually, I'm not on your side anymore, I'm on their side? What happens? We don't know exactly, but you're exa you're, you're, you were exactly right to point out that, that it's not really a contradiction, but it is a risk, um, which is that if you grant someone authority, they may not use that authority on your behalf, right? They may at some point decide that there's a better route toward maintaining their own authority, toward fulfilling their own goals, working against you. And that's certainly we know what happens with Wager, Apongo, that sometime after it's clear that he's not going to be redeemed and sent back to Africa, he begins to plan you know, his part in this, what's going to be the largest slave revolt in the 18th century British empire. We don't know exactly when Taki decides this. What we do know is somewhere on the night of April 7th, he goes to Trinity Plantation and organizes this conspiracy. And early on the morning of April 8th, they attack Fort Haldane, which is the British fort at Port Maria. They overwhelm a very lightly defended fort. With what? With their hands? With machetes from the field? With what? How do they do it? How do they overpower? With machetes. A few of them may have had guns that they had they had managed to, to convey from the plantations. But really what we, what we think is that they had machetes. They're able to overwhelm these this lightly defended fort, and then they take the weapons from the fort. And that's when they begin to coalesce and begin marching up the parish, right? Attacking plantations and burning them as they go. 
How many, how many at the beginning and how many, how quickly does it start growing and momentum with numbers? So our estimates are maybe about a hundred people at the beginning, swelling to several hundred by the time the revolt kind of reaches its its peak a couple of days later. So how many plantations do they overwhelm and, and how, liberate the slaves from? I don't have an exact number for you. It's in the book, but um, they attack four or five plantations all up along the main road of the parish. And that means they're going to have liberated, you know, several hundred enslaved people. In the course of a single night or in a in couple of In the course days? of about 36 hours. Wow. Really? Yeah. Okay. So it's well coordinated and it's yeah. well organized. It's extremely well coordinated. And that's why kind of one of the common ways of thinking about these revolts as just reactions to the brutality of enslavement doesn't quite capture the kind of intention and strategy and tactics that's involved in staging this kind of revolt. I think that's better captured by thinking about them as wars. So, I mean, I, I have a question because, you know, this is, this is like, you can't pick up the phone and say, tonight's the night. You know? So how, how do you pass the word from one plantation to a plantation, four plantations down that tonight is the night? I mean, sometimes I've heard music plays a part in this, that, you know, there are coded messages. That's, I mean, is that right? Is it, is it yeah. through music and, and song that the message whatever, yeah. and drums that it's passed on? How? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. Um, what we know is that, look, because so much of the population was enslaved, all the people who convey goods and therefore information from plantation to plantation are themselves enslaved as well, right? So the word is passed as people are going on about their daily chores. And they're remarking, they, they try to find either specific dates when they're going to be festivals. Of course, this happened on Easter, right? The Westmoreland Revolt happened on Whit Sunday, on May 25th. So they find and remark on specific dates or specific phases of the moon, mm -hmm. right? Or specific events like the departure of the fleet. So there are all of these ways of kind of timing these kinds of events to say, when this happens, and we all know what this kind of event signifies, that's when the time for the revolt is going to be. And is there any indication that Taki has military training from his past that he's that he's coordinating in a uh, in a militarily advanced way? Yeah, I mean, what we know is that the way they fight this campaign against the plantations is similar to the way Gold Coast warriors fight their campaigns against each other. How fascinating! So explain that more. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah so what they often do is they they form small bands and they skirmish. They hit and run. Hit and run skirmishing with British forces, with the militia first, and then the British army, and then even Marines from the Royal Navy, and burn plantations along the way to signal that the uprising is happening. That's the second you know, answer to your question, Anita, is there may be an initial moment, but then once the rebellion begins, it's the flames rising up from the plantations that signal that it's on. And everybody who's been alerted that this might happen, know that it is happening now. And any indication on a, uh, an overarching aim? Are they trying to take over the island or, or just get revenge? Or do we have any notion of what they're after? So they obviously didn't leave their strategic plans <laughs> behind for <laughs> us to find. So we don't have with, with any certainty an answer to that question. But by mapping the way they moved across the landscape, I think it's possible to discern some of their strategic intentions. So for example, in the parish of St. Mary, these Africans move up the main road to the parish. They don't immediately go to the mountains, say, to form maroon communities, independent communities that can be defended from the British. We haven't mentioned the maroons before, so just explain the maroons. So 
From the time the British first took the island from the Spanish in 1655, as part of Oliver Cromwell's Western design, right? The Western design largely fails to dislodge other European powers from the Americas, but they do manage to take Jamaica from the Spanish in 1655. When they do, small groups of slaves that the Spanish had flee to the mountains, and they continue fighting the British through the end of the 17th century on into the 18th century. As they do, uprising after uprising, their forces gather. So that by the 1730s, they're fighting a protracted war with British colonists, and the British don't even know that they're going to be able to keep the island, right? This fighting gets so hot in the 1730s, a lot of planters think that they're going to have to abandon their enterprises altogether. What finally happens then is the British sue for peace. And so treaties are signed in 1739 that grant the Maroons their autonomous existence in their mountainous encampments, but also require the Maroons to police future slave revolts and capture runaways for the British. Why do they agree to that? It's a diplomatic concession to maintain their own freedom, right? So these wars against the British were just as hard on the Maroons as they were on the British colonists. And this isn't just in this island. I've come across similar stuff in Réunion. Yeah. I mean, this is a common tactic. When the colonists cannot win, they try to to sue for terms of peace that will still allow them to maintain their control of these colonial territories. And one of the things is, is the Maroons are adept, highly adept at fighting on this terrain. And so by treaty, the British obligate them in order to maintain their own freedom to police future slave revolts. In the case of Taki's revolt, they do. Is that what happens when Taki's revolt kicks off? Do the Maroons come down from the mountains with their muskets or whatever they've got? Taki's revolt is the first big, big test of this diplomatic arrangement that the Maroons will help to suppress future slave revolts. And in the case of Taki's revolt, they do. Right. Okay. So how, how long does the momentum build before those men come down from the mountains? So have you got a militia fighting them at first? What's the, what's the order? So there's a pattern that you see in the suppression of these slave revolts, and you certainly see it playing out in the course of the revolt of 1760, which is that the first on the scene are the militia, the colonial militia that's drilled and trained on their parade grounds really is comprised of the overseers, the bookkeepers, the plantation managers. Someone will notice there's a rebellion, ride from plantation to plantation and collect all the white people to go and and make an attack. And they will number in their tens, their hundreds? I mean, how many are we talking about? Yeah, probably in the the dozens and scores. Right, okay. Now, these militia attacks are generally unsuccessful, especially in these early stages of Taki's revolt, in part because the Africans often have military experience. Often these people are trained fighters who've been involved in African wars. And the planters may not. And the planters may not be. And the Africans are more accustomed to fighting and even training in the kinds of tropical terrain that they find in Jamaica. So, you know, the militia are, you know, not generally extremely successful. And then you have British army forces, right? A bit more successful because more disciplined and better trained. But the people who are really effective at fighting African rebellions are other Africans and the descendants of other Africans, the Maroons, who are obligated by treaty to help suppress these rebellions. such a tragic bit of the narrative. It's just awful. And they have the, the skill at fighting on this kind of rough mountainous and jungle terrain. So how, how long before they put down this particular rebellion? 
So this early phase of the rebellion, mm. what we call Tacky's Revolt in the parish of St. Mary, lasts less than two weeks, ultimately. Wow. Okay. Okay. And what sort of revenge is taken on the, on the defeated forces? A, people are just summarily executed on the spot, often without any kind of trial. Heads are cut off, you know, extreme tortures are meted out to try and gather information on what's happening. Kind of the whole, again, catalog of brutality that you see in counterinsurgency and suppression. Yeah, and, and also you talk about actually some of the, the those who rose up in revolt taking their own lives because they just can't stand the idea of losing. That's right. I mean, when it, when it becomes clear that this revolt is not going to be successful, many of the fighters end up taking their own lives before they can be captured. You, you write somewhere about coming across a tree hanging with bodies. and Yeah, in fact, that's, that's something that emerges from the diary of Thomas Thistlewood again, where he talks about you know, Africans, dead Africans stinking in the woods. There are so many corpses in trees, dead in the woods and hanging in the woods that, that the woods begin to stink of dead humanity. I hate that man so much. We haven't actually, though, explained what happens to Taki himself. Do we know? Well, we know from the account of Edward Long, that planter historian who wrote the three-volume history of Jamaica, uh, that Taki was shot by a maroon. Because it's a kind of dramatic story in Edward Long that you know Taki and the maroon were running at full speed, and he was shot uh, at full speed. Now, we also know from Edward Long that his head was cut off, was brought to Spanish town, where it was displayed on a pole. And that someone took the head down, as Edward Long said, unwilling to see it displayed in such an ignoble manner. Now, there are people in Jamaica, in the parish of St. Mary, who will claim through legend and folklore that Taki was never killed, that somehow he escaped, he hid in a cave, he escaped, uh, he went into this area known as Taki Falls, this deep ravine uh, with a major waterfall, and evaded capture. Is he going to come back to liberate to liberate Jamaica? <laughs> is well, that's like the interesting thing, right? Is yeah. we've got we've kind of got the documentary record of Taki, but of course that documentary record can't be taken at face value. Edward Long himself was a slaveholder who hated Africans and clearly was you know uh, no fan of the revolt. And then we have this legend on the other side that survives. I tend to stick with the documentary record as a historian, but I do take some cues from folklore and legend as well in terms of how I represent this. Anyway, look, this, yeah. is, this is the end of this particular phase, but it is not the end of the revolt. Join us after the break where we talk a little more to Vincent Brown of what this has started. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So the initial stages of Taki's revolt lasting only a few weeks put down by fellow Africans, the, the Maroons who come down from the mountains, um, which is you know completely heartbreaking, to be honest. Vincent, in your book, um, I was assuming in the course of this revolt that we're talking about men, uh, men fighting and so on. But you say that 40% of the captives taken at the end of this revolt were female and that they suffer very brutally at the end of this. That was one of the most fascinating things that I discovered in the course of researching this, which is, you know, we tend to think of these kinds of violent revolts as being led overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, by men. But one of the things that happened in these revolts is because the white population was so outnumbered, if they captured people, they didn't want to leave people to guard them. And so that's where the Royal Navy came in. Often what they would do then is put these people aboard a Royal Navy warship And then they would go back into the parish to keep suppressing the revolt. Now, because the Royal Navy is a big bureaucracy and they like their accounting, anytime someone boards a Royal Navy warship, they've got to be listed on the muster. And so we have on the muster the first 25 rebels captured in this first phase of Tacky's revolt in St. Mary. We've got their names. And as it turns out that of those 25, 10 have what are identifiably women's names. And that is 40% of those first rebels captured, which is about the percentage of women in the parish at the time. So women are proportionally represented among the very first rebels captured. Now, we don't know exactly what they were doing in the course of this rebellion, exactly how and why they were captured, but I think it does uh, encourage us, compel us to ask some questions about that conventional assumption that women aren't involved Mm. in this kind of violent revolt. So, Taki is no more. 
I mean, I like to think he's under the waterfall somewhere. <laughs> he's under the waterfall, definitely. There's no question. I'll, I shall cling to that. For the, for the Hollywood version. Yeah, well, I mean, it's fine by he me. He will come back to see the end of the it's Commonwealth. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> Listen, but, but what, about, what about the aftermath and what does it spark? Because this must be absolutely terrifying to the British that, you know, some jumped up little driver has managed to overturn the apple cart completely within, you know, the space of 36 hours. How can this be? What is what is the reaction to that? And is it not just a beacon? You know, like the, you described the plantations on fire being seen by others. Does that not inspire others to say, well, if he could do it, we could do this? That's exactly right. There is some question about whether or not Tacky's revolt inspired the others or whether or not this was a very widely laid plan and the St. Mary part of the revolt may have just happened too early. Because in late May, on May 25th, on Whit Sunday, there's another uprising in the parish of Westmoreland, this one led by Apongo, who we were talking about in the last episode of the podcast. And this is much more extensive and lasts much longer than Tacky's revolt in St. Mary. The planters, as they're kind of learning about what happened, seemed to discern that the revolt was initially planned for Whitsunday, May 25th, but that the rebels in St. Mary's went off too early. That's fascinating. Uh, now, we don't know if they were right or if the Whitsunday revolt was inspired by what happened in Tacky's revolt. What I think, though, is that this was a widely laid plan, and you can see that because so many of the other revolts kind of happened around the same time across different mountain ranges where they were simultaneous, indicating a previous network of information and news and planning that I think you can tell from just where things happen and when. And these people presumably haven't got calendars and clocks and they're not, they're not working on... Well, no. I mean, they've got the moon, <laughs> right? Which is a calendar, you know? So the, the people, are, people are gauging time in ways that we don't anymore. But yes, they don't, they don't have the internet, that's for sure. So what happens with, with, with Apongo? How many rise up with him and, 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 and what is the result? So what we know is that this revolt actually kind of starts in the parish of Westmoreland, where Arthur Forrest, that Royal Navy ship captain, had his own Jamaican sugar plantation. And that revolt spreads very rapidly through Westmoreland. Um, the white population essentially evacuates the parish, goes down to the main town of Savannah Lamar, and many of them board Royal Navy warships and wait off the coast while the militia, then the British Army, then uh, Marines from the Royal Navy go in up into the hills to suppress the revolt. The Royal Navy and the Marines are present, or they've been summoned Some from elsewhere? Present. I mean, let's remember that, you know, Jamaica was one of the principal Royal Naval stations in the Americas. And so some are present. I mean, this is a time of war. So there are more warships present than there might normally be and Marines alongside those warships. So there are, you know, the Navy is pretty ready to deploy um, very rapidly. And you talk about a rebel's barricade being erected by Apongo and his people. The rebel's barricade is fascinating because, you know, as I was looking at this parish landscape, trying to map out how the rebellion happened, I managed to find a a, a map that was produced, uh, made from surveys that were taken in the late 1750s through the early 1760s. And it was finally put together in 1763 for the governor who suppressed the revolt. And that map lists 
a rebel's barricade in the parish of Westmoreland, right? It's Brilliant. right there on the map. It's not on any previous maps. It's not on any later maps. Because these surveys happened through the time of the revolt, the rebels' barricade is listed there. And that is where the rebels, after burning many of the plantations in Westmoreland Parish, did go up into the mountains and form a rebel encampment. You can see from where they formed this encampment that they were trying to defend themselves, both from the planters in the plains and also from the Maroons in the mountains. And what it looks like is they wanted to establish their own Maroon community that could be defensible from both the Maroons who had signed the treaties and from the planters who hoped to suppress Which them. makes perfect sense. You can't get off the island, so you, you go up to the mountains. Yeah, because you're safer and out of reach and you can break a deal there. And is it a guerrilla war? I mean, do, you're getting the impression that, 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 that these guys are disappearing into the, into the jungle and coming out again and striking in, in that West African war model? Absolutely. They're skirmishing kind of, you know, both through the dense uh, uh, bush, but also up into the mountains in the way they might have in West Africa, in a way that's largely alien to the way Europeans would have fought uh, in battle lines in Europe. And so I think you can call it one of the early kind of modern guerrilla conflicts against a major empire. He's, he's got up to the hills, the, bar- the rebel barricades have finished. What is the final stages of that, uh, that revolt? Yeah. So that revolt lasts uh, several weeks, in fact. But uh, Apongo is finally captured, brought into town and displayed in the public gibbet, um, where Thistlewood actually goes to see him. The overseer Thomas Thistlewood sees him dying. He's captured live. Yeah, he is captured. And that's reported in the newspapers that he's captured. Uh, And then there is another rebel named Simon, who conducts a long march from the parish of Westmoreland across the neighboring parish of St. Elizabeth and uh, into the parish after that before he is finally captured in 1761. You compare him to Spartacus, I think, in the book. Right, because you know you, you hear Simon's name popping up again and again and again, where people kind of say, I'm Simon, no, I'm Simon, no, I'm Simon, <laughs> because this revolt is kind of you know laid so deeply in the hearts and minds of the enslaved population. News of this does get back to England. And I mean, there is sympathy, is there not, for those people who are punished in such unspeakable ways that you've described. Is this a pivotal point in the, in the psyche of, of Britain itself? to learn that this goes on in its name. Yes. So news travels in waves to various constituencies in Great Britain. You know, first, obviously, the policymakers find out about this. And, you know, they're mostly concerned that the strategic colony is maintained and that the profits keep flowing, right? And so, you know, they deploy all necessary forces to make sure that this is suppressed. And they're quite happy to see that happen. But as news accounts begin to filter out, both from you know, people who had been there and through sailors who'd been there and traveled back to the UK, the stories of the brutality meted out against the rebels and against the enslaved population become as affecting for a lot of people as the stories of, you know, white suffering uh, mm-hmm. that are being told by colonists. And so what you have is a kind of, you know, I guess, dueling empathy, Right? There are those people who empathize with the colonists because, of course, that's the extension of us. But there are also these people who are horrified by what's being done in the name of England and of Great Britain. William Blake famously, doesn't he, when he hears about the Haiti slave revolt, uh, he, he writes beautifully about the, 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 the enslaved people's situation. 
you know, William Blake, actually, we know of kind of all of these, these engravings that William Blake made of the tortures and suffering of enslaved Africans, um, because he's quite sympathetic to what they've gone to. And you see these expressions of sympathy kind of all over the Anglophone Atlantic world. Even as you see, people were saying like, well, right, this is, this is how the empire works uh, and this is what's got to happen. So, so is, this, is this the catalyst? Could you go as far as to say that Taggy's revolt and the uprisings that follow it are a catalyst for the abolitionist movement? I think the revolts of the 1760s are pivotal in, in this way. A, there is a kind of new awareness, and even as I said, in some quarters, an outpouring of empathy, especially in places that are not as directly dependent on an enslaved population in their territory. At the same time, though, there's a new fear, right, that the introduction of all of these potential rebels from Africa undermines the security of the colonial enterprise. And so you see some of the earliest legislation passed to try and limit the slave trade as a security measure, as a kind of anti-immigration security measure in North American colonies. And this really begins to start to chip away at the prerogatives of slave traders and slaveholders in such a way that like, you know, we, before we even see the kind of the, the moral campaigns against the slave trade, we see this kind of anti-immigrant campaign against the slave trade emerging. That's so interesting. So we're not we're not getting rid of slavery. We just don't want any more of those troublemakers involved. So we're just going to pull up the drawbridge. That's I've never thought about it that way. Well, I mean it's you know, I think it's worth remembering that anti-blackness and anti-slavery can coexist quite comfortably. Hmm. So kind of early in the wake of Tacky's revolt, there are lots of people who want to suppress the slave trade because they don't want any more black people in their territories. So at what point does slavery end in Jamaica? Because one would like to think that, you know, and the happily ever after is, and slavery died. It was, oh. you know, if it wasn't, if it wasn't tacky, then it was a Ponga. And if it wasn't a Ponga, it was Simon. If it wasn't Simon, it was, you know, whoever. How many more years does Jamaica have slavery? Oh, well, I mean, yes, it would be nice if kind of, you know, one revolt was, was all that was needed to end slavery. But slavery doesn't end in Jamaica until the 1830s. The slave trade is first abolished by Great Britain in 1807. And then slavery continues uh, for another 30 years. There's legislation to end slavery in 1834. And then there's a period of apprenticeship where formerly enslaved people are still largely enslaved until 1838, when slavery is finally abolished. So it's quite a long time after Tacky's revolt, and there are many revolts in between 1838 and 1760. But you know, one can say that slavery does enter the British Empire three decades before it ends in the United States. How do people think of, of, of Tacky now in Jamaica? I mean, what, what is the position he holds in people's imagination? Well, one of the things that's been fascinating for me is to see how the book has been taken up in a campaign to make Taki a national hero in Jamaica. And you see this in the work of, say, activists. Like there's this one activist named Black X who's been walking across the island wearing a 30-pound chain to commemorate Taki's revolt to try and get Taki recognized as a national hero. And kind of when he found the book, he realized that it could be helpful to his campaign. And it's, it's, it's gotten some lift from politicians even. So just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a motion tabled to make Chief Taki a national hero by a member of parliament from St. Mary Parish. 
Anita's too modest to say this herself, but we should say that uh, Anita's own campaign uh, last week also uh, resulted in a goal, I think you could say, and that we finally got a, a nice uh, plaque raised in Sophia Dulip Singh's old house in Hampton Court. Uh, and Anita was there uh, addressing it, along with the descendants of, of the Pankhurst, the suffragettes. Yes, yes, no, yes. Emmeline's great-granddaughter. And, and I got the great honour of pulling the um, rope to unveil it. I, I honestly don't think there's anything that's going to match it. So between the two of you, you are both doing very important work. These reminders are important because these people were important. So... Yes, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled for you. I hope, Vincent, that you know, you'll know you come back when this becomes real um, and there really is a, a sort of a, a monument raised. Well, I think you know these campaigns for commemoration are continuations of these battles that we're describing in the past. I mean, that's the interesting thing about it. So I was also involved in consulting with St. Peter's Church in Dorset, where there was actually a, a, a plaque in honor of someone who had helped to suppress Takizuvolt that was right there in the church. Mm. Now it kind of became controversial. And so, you know, the church decided they might do something about it. And they finally moved it from the church to a historic museum where it can still be studied, but it's not in its place of honor. So these campaigns to commemorate honor or dishonor certain figures from even the 18th century past are ongoing. Well, finally, I mean, just on that, because... The, uh, the the thing in the church was removed. Is that the way you feel the world should treat these monuments, these statues, these commemorations of people who were involved in slavery? And we had very famously Coulson pulled down in Bristol and thrown into the bay. And some people think that that's a dreadful thing to do because it erases the history. It's better to put a plaque next to it uh, to explain. I mean, what, what would you what would you prefer if you like? Yeah. So let me start by saying I have no argument with the activists who tore down Colston's statue and threw it into the river. <laughs> so I'm not mad at those people for doing that. But as a historian, yes, I would prefer that we continue to view and study and think about these historical artifacts because that is our past. And it is the evidence of the past. And it's the evidence of our past. We don't have to have them maintained in places of honor. But in fact, I think we commemorate the past, especially the darker aspects of our past, as a warning, right, about what humanity is capable of and what we should avoid in the future. And I don't want to remove or erase those warnings from our landscape. And Vincent, finally, finally, I promise we will let you go. We've kind of held you hostage for two days. <laughs> finally, 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 why is it important? Vincent's revolt. Why, why is it important to talk about empire? Why, is, why do you toil in this field? Well, I could ask you both the same question, but my answer is this. I don't think most people understand how intertwined human history is. We tend to think of our history in national terms, right? And the history of empire teaches us how connected we are to people who might not be like us. So early on when I was doing my research on Jamaica, way back in the mid-90s, I remember staying with a friend in Britain, an Indian friend, an Indian woman who was married to a British guy. It's a college-educated guy. And when he learned what I worked on, he said, yeah, why is it that Jamaicans speak English anyway? And his Indian wife said, colonialism, you bloody idiot. Why the hell do you think I speak English? <laughs> right? Now, I don't, I don't blame him for that, right? Because, I mean, as you will know, that after decolonization, 
British schools stopped teaching the history of the British Empire and started teaching again the history of Britain as this chain of islands off the peninsula of Europe. And so when people started showing up again from the former empire, the former colonies, a lot of Britons thought, well, what have they got to do with us? And the answer, of course, is, well, we're here now because you were there, right? But that kind of history of empire, I think, is vital to understanding the societies we live in today. And if people are just thinking of their history in narrow national terms, they won't understand why there's a plaque to someone who suppressed Tacky's revolt in a parish church in Dorset. We've had this response to so many of our podcasts. And the most common tweet we see when we log on to our, to our Twitter site is, I didn't learn this in school. I didn't know any of this. I, I have know. a college. I have a college history degree. I did not learn any of this. And bizarrely, not only in this country but also in India, we find so many Indians aren't learning this as well, and around the world. Yeah. Although I have to say, things are changing because I, I didn't learn any yeah. of this. But I just was talking to my my thirteen year old the other day, who is deep in the misery of revision at the moment, and he is. I mean, one of the modules in history is slavery. So there really? is something. Yeah. yeah. That Fantastic. is something I, that would never have happened when I when I were a when I were a lad, but you know, he is doing it. So, And the work continues and the work continues. And I honor you guys for doing this work. We should just conclude by saying that if you're going to buy one book (laughs) this month, you need to go out and get Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war by Vincent Brown. Vincent and I were both up for a prize, the Cundill Hill for for history, which neither of us got. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm glad to see that you you got not one, but five other uh, prizes on the back of your paperback. The Addisfield Wolf Book Award, the James A. Rawnsley Prize, the Oscar Kensha prize the phyllis wheatley book award and the elsa Guevara book prize so many many Listen, congratulations now, now. you've won lots <laughs> too you've won lots too don't you worry your pretty little head about it you've ever. got lots too uh, vincent it's been an absolute delight to have you thank you so much for your time for your candor for your wisdom it's it's been marvelous Oh, it's been an honor. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You were just wonderful, Vincent. Thank you so, so much for coming on. It was just just the, amazing. That is all that we have time for uh, on Empire. Do join us again next week. And until then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Durrumpel.